Welcome to the Grace Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. Every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., we gather together at the Malco Theater in Collierville, Tennessee, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by worshiping God through music, scripture, and a message for our lives. So if you're looking for a church home where you can feel loved and accepted as part of God's family, then come and join us at Grace Hill Church. You can visit our website at gracehill901.com for more information about our services and what we have planned for the upcoming weeks. We look forward to connecting with you. Now here's this week's message. Well, it's great to be here with you today. What a beautiful Lord's Day to be among the people of God. Um, I'm Randall Johnson. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Hill. I was uh, thinking about Jason's message last week, and you know, he talked about the fact that he initially in his life he didn't like salad, and always had Thousand Island dressing on it. I guess that was part of it. But then he decided uh, when he tried some salad with a new dressing on it, ranch dressing, man, he he decided he liked salad. So I was thinking, I could really, I could be a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus with Jason, because I like salad too. And uh, although that Sunday, actually last Sunday, I went home and had salad and I put Thousand Island dressing on it. I don't, I don't know what his deal is with the Thousand Island dressing, but we're, we're simpatico that way, you know. But then he also talked about how he likes Americana coffee. That is, that's just straight coffee, you know. It's, there's nothing added into it, and I, I can't stand coffee. So I'm thinking maybe it's not going to be that easy to be in community of grace and peace with Jason for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus because of that coffee issue. Although I, I did have some coffee a couple weeks ago. It was Colombian coffee, and it had milk and sugar in it, I guess, and it was palatable. You know, I, I could drink it. But to Jason, that's, that's adulterating that coffee, you know. And so I don't know if we can have unity in the in the place of uh, the church of God here. So, and I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, Randall, that's so dumb. You know, whether you like salad or whether you like coffee, that's not important enough to base your unity on. And you're right. So what is? You know, what, what is a sufficient reason to not be together, to divide from one another? Would it, would it be that we have different political Views, a lot of people are divided by that, right? Or, or what if I believe that for some reason it's not right to have communion every Sunday? Would that be a basis for division? Or what if I believe that we shouldn't be meeting in a theater, we should be meeting in our own building? Would that be something to fight over? What if I believed, came to believe, that um, the gospel was that you had to have works and not just faith in order to be saved? Would that be a sufficient reason to have division? You know, Paul, we're talking about the letter of Philippians. Paul was in prison. He was in a rented house. He was in chains. He was under guard from Roman soldiers. He was awaiting a trial in Rome. And this guy, Epaphroditus, from the Philippian church, shows up there at his house with money. 
from the church in Philippi. And you can imagine how wonderful that experience was for Paul to, to, to greet Epaphroditus, that was the man's name, who came and, and brought the gift. And how excited he must have been to oh, hear the church is, is knowing what's going on with me and they're, they're here to help me. But Epaphroditus had to tell him something that was not so exciting. And that is that uh, this gift that they had sent, not everybody was in agreement about sending this gift. You see, the, the Philippian church, they had experienced a huge economic downturn in their community. And so there were, there were people in their community that needed their help financially. And some of the people were thinking, we don't need to be sending this money to Paul. We need to be taking care of our own. But others were adamant, no, we've, we've got to send this money to Paul. The gospel's at stake. Paul, the, the apostle of the gospel, he's in jail. I mean, we have to do something. And you can imagine uh, the arguing that had taken place. And there was a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of anger because of this conflict. Obviously, the winners were the ones that said, we need to send money to Paul. And so here was Epaphroditus. So Paul decides to write a letter to them to address this issue of their conflict and disunity. What would you write? If our church was going through something like this, what would you write? What would you say to the church to deal with these issues? Would you, would you agree with one side of the conflict over another? Apparently, there were two women leaders in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, and they were you know, the heads of each of these different contending views. Would you, would you tell... Yodia's wrong, Syntyche's right. I mean, what would you say? I think the letter that Paul wrote is a masterpiece. Every single detail in this letter from his greeting to his conclusion is meticulously designed to address and communicate this issue of finding unity in a divided world. Jason shared with us last week how even Paul's opening greeting is communicating two pretty crucial ideas for this concept of, of unity and, and getting out of conflict. One, he said, is that we are servants of Jesus Christ. That means we don't have our own will. We serve the will of Jesus. We may have our own ambitions and desires, but those aren't the top-notch issues Jesus' will is the top overwhelming will and determiner of what we think and believe. And the second principle that, that was in that greeting is that we are saints. We've been set apart by God to be holy and loving. And so we're to live out that holy, loving aspect of our relationship with God. Two pretty crucial concepts to, to finding unity Servants and saints. So Paul has already begun to describe and, and teach them something critical about their conflict and about unity. Now, in this next part of his letter that we're looking at today, 
This is typically called the prayer report because Paul normally in most of his letters talks about how he prays for the people he's writing to and what he prays for the people he's writing to. And Philippians is no exception. Paul's going to talk about how he prays for them and what he prays for them. And so um, let's read this passage. And to do it, why don't we all stand? Let's read this together. In fact, I'd like you to read it in unison with me. Verses 3 to 11 of chapter 1. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thank you. You can be seated. What, what feeling do you get from reading this passage? What, what was Paul feeling? I mean, was he angry and frustrated with the Philippians? And it may be, but the overwhelming feeling that I get from this is that he was thankful. He was thankful for them. He was in prayer for them, for all of them. Did you notice the emphasis, the repetition of the word all? And he sees them as one. He, he sees them as a unity, perhaps when even they don't see themselves as a unity. And when he prays for them, he says, I pray for you with joy. And there's, a, there's that overwhelming feeling he's think, feeling, joy. And he, he tells us, he fills us in as to what it is that's fueling his joy as he's praying for the Philippians. And it's this, it's, it's they have a partnership with him in the gospel. They have shared with him, they've been in fellowship with him in the gospel from the very first day that he founded this church until the very, till the very present. They are committed with him to Jesus Christ and to the spread of his gospel. That gives him joy. That fills him up as he prays for them. So this partnership with him in the gospel has been evidenced by such things as the fact that they sent this financial gift to him. This isn't the only time they have financially supported him. And he explains that later in the, at the end of the letter. And, and they prayed for him. And so he feels this kinship with them. He feels this partnership, this fellowship with them. And he feels that this is an evidence 
that they really know the Lord. Paul knows God. And here's what he knows about God. What God starts, he finishes. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So if God has brought salvation to someone, he will make sure that that someone continues to have that salvation working in him or her. What God starts, he finishes. I'd say that passage right there is a pretty good argument that you can't lose your salvation. But God starts salvation in a person. He finishes at the day of Christ. At the same time, I would say it's also a pretty good argument for the fact that if you have salvation, you won't fail to keep growing as a saint. You won't quit the race before it's over. God will keep working this salvation in you until the day Christ returns. Salvation you have, you cannot lose. And that salvation cannot lose you. Both those are true. So the, the once saved, always saved salvation that we have in Christ makes for a person who once saved will continue to act saved. If we want to think about uh, a couple of terms, th theological terms to describe this perspective, this concept, it would be this, the preservation of the saints and the perseverance of the saints. God will preserve the saints from the beginning to the end. He'll never let go of us. The saints will persevere. They'll continue to walk in the faith for all of their lives. Those two concepts... You can't lose your faith, but the faith you have will cause you to walk in faith. So just as the Philippians had been sending money to Paul, this was giving evidence that God had started this work in them, and he was continuing this work in them because what God starts, he finishes. And so this was evidence and encouragement to Paul that they were really believers, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean in a sense, that Paul has sided with those, whichever one it was, Euodia, Syntyche, has sided with those who wanted to send money to Paul. Because I can imagine this, this letter being read in the Philippian congregation, and there are some of them sitting back there saying, oh, yeah, say it on, Paul. Right on. You know, and they're maybe shooting some daggers at whichever one of the women was leading the opposite view. We don't need to send money to Paul. And they're saying, in your face! Because... Paul just confirmed it was good for us to send this money. This is what shows that we're genuine believers. But look at then what Paul says after this. He says, I'm, it's right for me to think this way about all of you. Look at verses 7 and 8. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. You are all partners with me, all of you in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection 
of Christ Jesus. Paul has a longing for the Philippian church, every single one of them, that springs from the longing of Jesus himself. And it's not just for those who sent the gift. It's not those who agree or disagree with Yodi or Syntyche. It's for all of them. He loves all of them with the love of Jesus Christ. Unity isn't just agreeing with everybody. Does that make sense? Unity isn't just agreeing with everyone. Unity comes from a shared commitment to what is most important. A shared commitment to what is most important. A company can have unity. It can have a shared commitment to making a profit. And that's what unites everybody in that company. A neighborhood can have unity. It can have a shared commitment to this being a beautiful neighborhood. A group of prisoners <laughs> could have uh, unity in, behind the bars, you know, because they have a shared commitment to helping each other survive. But Christian unity, the unity of the body of Christ, the unity of the church is not just its shared commitment to Jesus and the spread of his gospel. It's more than that. It's also his love for us. And because he loves us, we love one another. Would you be happy if your family had a shared unity? We're all going to go to Disney World. Let's, let's make this happen. If they had a commitment that they shared to that, but they didn't care about each other, they didn't love each other, would that feel like a family that has unity? And it's the same with the church. It's not just the shared commitment we have, which is powerful, which is huge, but it's the love we have for one another that marks us off as believers. What did, what did Jesus say? He said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's, it's sharing that commitment with love for one another. Even if we disagree about how we're going to be for the good of the city and the fame of Jesus, how we're going to carry that out, even if we disagree with that, we love each other. We have a love that comes from Christ himself. It's Christ's love in us and through us. I remember uh, years ago, sitting in counseling with a couple who were having a terrible time with, with constant conflict with each other. And, um, I was sitting there listening to him and don't know that I'd had much help <laughs> in helping them. But I felt suddenly this overwhelming love for them. And I don't know how to tell you how I knew where this was coming from, but I knew it was Christ's love for them somehow in me and through me for them. And I shared this with them. This is what they needed. They needed Christ's love for each other flowing in and through them towards each other. They were servants. They're servants of God. Their will is not their own. They're saints. They're supposed to demonstrate holiness and love. They're members of the family of God, and that's the kind of unity we're supposed to have. It has to come love from Christ through us. 
I also remember years ago, um, <laughs> there was a particular lady in the congregation I was in at the time who, for some reason, just bugged me. Uh, she was from New York. I don't think that that's absolutely the reason why she bugged me. Although she had, you know, some of those northern mannerisms that I, I don't know what they are exactly, but kind of a crassness, you know, a hardness. I don't know what it was. And the thing that I remember, too, is that um, she loved to talk to me and she loved to touch my face. It was like, who invited you to feel the freedom to touch my face? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen these progressive insurance commercials where the guy is trying to teach people not to be like their parents when they become homeowners. I don't, you know, it, they're crazy. They're funny. And there's one in which he's written a book about this and he's signing the books. And one lady comes up and says, you know, I made some snacks for you. And she takes some of the food and she puts it in his mouth. That's how I felt. If you've seen that commercial, you've seen that guy, the expression on his face, that's how I felt when she would do that. And so, you know, at the time, um, I loved to go to the gym early in the morning before anybody else was there. And so I, I, I went to the gym, and lo and behold, this lady comes in. And of course, you know, I'm happy to just do exercise and not talk to anybody, but that's not her mode of operation. You know, she's going to talk, she's going to whatever. And I thought, Lord, this is just, why is this happening? This is not good. And I, I made a, a conscious decision, a, a request to him, Lord, I need you to love her through me. Because I don't, I don't feel that way about her right now. And he did it. That's something he really wants to do. That's, the whole, that's what Paul is saying here. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's the kind of love we're supposed to have for one another. We have this shared commitment to be a community for grace and peace, for the good of our city, for the fame of Jesus. It's brought together in love for one another. Christian unity is loving each other with the love of Jesus Christ, literally. So Paul is telling how he prays for them, and he prays with joy, and now he's going to tell them what he prays for them. Look at verses 9 through 11. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul knows that there's something that they need, the Philippians need, and something we need that only God himself can provide. And it's three things. He, he knows three things that, that they need and that we need. You need an increase in love. I pray that your love will grow. I pray that your love will keep on growing. We need an increase in our love. And secondly, we need our love to increase in knowledge and discernment. And the third thing we need is for that discernment to help us determine what is superior this is part of our decision-making. So if you have these things, Paul says, you'll be pure and blameless at the day of Christ Jesus because you've been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So this salvation that God began in you 
will be brought to completion at the day of Christ, and it'll be God's accomplishment in you. You'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Yes, it's you producing that fruit, but it's also Jesus Christ producing that fruit in you. It's not just us carrying on this Christian life. It's him in us. Just like his love is in us, his power is working in us. So first, Paul prays for us that your love needs to keep on growing. As we've already said, love is critical to the community of grace and peace for the good of the city and the fame of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And sure enough, in those early days of the church, one of the things that people noticed about the Christians, the Christ followers, they said, man, look at how much they love each other. Are people saying that today about you and me? Is that what stands out to them about us as Christians? Man, look how they love each other. One of the things that um, we do as we work, we serve for uh, Germantown Elementary School. Do people see us being loving to one another as we serve? As we interact with our neighbors, do people say, man, those people love each other. One of the greatest goods we can do for our city is to love each other. I mean, think about it. Nothing is more compelling to the gospel than that believers love one another. And nothing takes the steam out of an unbeliever's animosity toward the church than the love that we have for each other and for for the world, for that matter. Love is really, it's kind of the gift that conquers all. It's the thing that makes for true victory. Even if it loses the battle, it really won. Love is the, the spoon that holds the sugar that makes the medicine go down. Love is everything. Love is what makes for broken hearts, but it's also what makes Life worthwhile. Love has never known an enemy it couldn't forgive. It's never known a slight that it couldn't excuse. It's never known a challenge it couldn't overcome. Love is what makes us truly human and channels for for God himself. Someone has said it is love, not knowledge, that stretches us to our full height I like that. We love because it's the only true adventure. Someone else said this. I think it'll be up on the screen, yes. We believe that we are hurt when we don't receive love. But that is not what hurts us. Our pain comes when we do not give love. We were born to love. You might say that we are divinely created love machines. We function most powerfully when we are giving love. The world has led us to believe that our well-being is dependent on other people loving us. But this is the kind of upside-down thinking that has caused so many of our problems. The truth is that our well-being is dependent on our giving 
love. It's not what comes back. It's what goes out. So love needs to keep growing. That's what Paul is praying for. Despite the pain that it might cause, rather than shrinking back from it, love needs to keep growing. And that's what Paul was praying for the Philippians. I think what we should be praying for ourselves. And then the second thing that Paul prays for them and wants for them is that their love would grow in knowledge and discernment. Does love really need love and discernment? You bet it does. You know it does. You love your kid, but you don't know if the loving thing to do is to ignore this particular behavior or address it, maybe even discipline it. You love your fellow church members, but you don't know if sending them on this possibly dangerous mission is a good thing or a bad thing. And is it loving to confront your spouse about overt sin? Is it loving to cheat your child how to stand up to bullies? You know, these are the kinds of questions that we get. We could go on and on with those kinds of questions. Love needs knowledge and discernment to know how do I love? How does love work in this particular situation? The Philippians had felt the need to send Paul money because some of them at least felt the gospel was in danger. If they didn't support Paul, if they didn't help him in this situation, the gospel could fail. But Paul's going to tell them in just a couple of verses, you know what? My imprisonment actually served to make for the progress of the gospel. I've had opportunities to witness to Roman soldiers here that I never would have had otherwise. They needed some discernment in their love. If they had been more discerning, they might have possibly made a different decision about whether to send Paul money or not. For sure, discerning love would have led them to make the best decision. And one of the best decisions was not fighting, not being at odds with one another over this, not separating and dividing because of something that's less valuable, less important than the gospel itself. And that's the third thing that Paul's praying for them, that they would be able to make, with this discernment, superior decisions, approve the things that are not better but best. Choose what's best over what's good. They're choosing to fight over sending money to Paul or providing for the needs of their own congregation. Each one, I'm sure, could argue, this is the most loving thing to do. You know, take care of our poor brother. Oh, take care of Paul. That's what's loving. But the superior thing was not to fight. That's what they should have approved. It was this disunity that they were having, in fact, and Paul's going to make a point of that in the letter. It's disunity among Christians that's the most threatening and damaging to the gospel. It's not Paul being in jail. It's not even him being killed, if that should happen. It's the disunity among believers. And here, that's exactly what they had fallen into. You may be thinking at this point, maybe there was a way for them to do both things, send some money to Paul and have some money for their own needs. You know, a compromise, I guess, of some sort. And that would be resolving this conflict. That would, they'd be pursuing both viewpoints, both ideas. Or perhaps there was a, another creative way they could come up with funding Paul and funding 
the needs of their own people. But anything, anything was better than their disunity. That's what Paul's trying to teach them. When you see unity behind the same overarching shared commitment, the spread of the gospel, or as we've been phrasing it, the good of the city and the fame of Jesus. When you see that kind of shared commitment to that overarching goal, that's the superior thing. Your love has truly increased in knowledge and discernment. Yeah, my friends, we are, we are not going to agree on everything, are we? That's just not going to happen. We might agree that we want to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus, but we're likely to disagree over how to accomplish that. What makes that happen? How do we do that? You know, I was sharing earlier, what's, what's the sufficient reason for dividing? Is it salad and coffee? Obviously not. Is it our political views? As heated as we might get about those, no, that is not a sufficient reason to divide and to have disunity among us. Now, well, what about if we decided that, uh, you know, someone says we shouldn't have communion every Sunday? Is that a reason to fight? No, because that's not the gospel. That's not the ultimate overarching commitment we have. That's a, that's a small thing, relatively speaking. More important is our unity. Well, what, if, what about if we said uh, we shouldn't be meeting here in a theater? We should be doing our, our own thing in our, our own building. Is that a reason to divide and fight? Not according to Paul. The only reason is the gospel. So what if, for some reason, I decided that the gospel meant you had to do good works in order to be saved? That is a reason for dividing. That is the only reason. Paul would tell us, to divide. Because that's our shared commitment is Jesus Christ and the spread of his gospel. And if we are spreading the wrong gospel, that's not Christianity. That's not the church. That is something we would fight over. But all these other issues, they're not as important. They're not that critical. And if we love each other, if we share a commitment to the gospel above everything else, we can argue our viewpoints. We can argue our differences. That's, unity is not failing to, to make those expressions of our views known, but we won't get up and leave if we're not getting our way. We wouldn't put down those other viewpoints or opinions because we know we're right. That wouldn't be part of our unity. Our love would be discerning and knowledgeable enough to realize what's most important here, what's superior here, is that we are one in Jesus Christ. That controls everything. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of God. We will see unbelievers drawn to us because they see our love. That's the thing that Jesus said would make all people know that we're his disciples. And his frame will spread because that's an 
undeniable argument for the truth of Christianity when people see us loving him. And then people will come to the Lord. That's what we want, isn't it? (laughs) That's our shared commitment. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that we do celebrate the Lord's Supper um, each week here at Grace. And we're going to do that. Uh, You may not have have picked up these elements, and so someone on the would get the elements here, that box of them, and uh, if someone needs some, we'll get some to you. But this is what the Lord's Supper does. It reminds us of what is most important. It's Jesus Christ and the gospel, this salvation that he's provided that we picture by the taking of these two elements. That's the good news. Jesus paid it all. And then at communion, each one of us comes to the table, figuratively speaking, on the same level, don't we? We all were absolutely in desperate need of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And every one of us came as a needy beggar coming to get that needed salvation. There's no royalty in Christianity. We each come on a par with everyone else. And we come to receive the same gift. So we we take communion together. We do it in unison because we want to emphasize our unity behind this commitment to Jesus Christ and his gospel. So we take the bread and we take it and we eat it in unison. In the same way, we take the cup representing his sacrifice and we drink it in unison. Father, we want to pray for ourselves the same thing Paul prayed for the Philippian church. That our love would grow and keep on growing. That it would grow in knowledge and discernment. And it would enable us to approve what is superior. So that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That's what we long for, Lord. God, answer that prayer for us. In Jesus' name. Well, let me give you a a blessing for this week. May you live a week filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May you grow in your love, grow in knowledge and discernment so that you can make those superior decisions. God bless you.